Hey everybody, it's Tanya Adleta back with Recovering Church Girls, and I am so excited. I know I say every time I open a show, I'm so excited, but seriously, I am so excited because I get to introduce you to a dear friend, Adam Hansen. Hi, Adam. Tanya, good morning. How the heck are you? I am just fine. We were just so reminiscing cool. before we started recording. Uh, this conversation, I think, has been waiting to be had for quite a few <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah, well, the things that happen when two raging extroverts first meet. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> this is very, very true. So to set the scene, first of all, what you need to know about Adam is that he is one of the most generous, kind, creative, inspiring people that I know. Um, and I'm not just saying this because he's across the computer screen from me. Uh, but really, I'm, I've always been an admirer pretty much ever since we met and just your energy and your creativity and the change that you're out to create in the world. And oftentimes that looks like in the corporate environment in your day job, you know, in the sense of ideas and innovations and all those things. So why don't you give us a quick little idea of what that's about, and then I'll set the stage for how this conversation got started however many years ago. Great. Yeah. So I got really lucky in grad school to get pointed in the direction of doing innovation as, uh, as a career. And uh, I knew that was going to be part of my career so as, as I was going into grad school, but the idea it could be the career was really fantastic news to me. And I was, you know, this naive kid from Idaho. And uh, so like I, you know, any, any kind of input like that that I could get was really appreciated. So yeah, so I've been at this now for about 30 years, uh, spent the first half of it on the client side, um, and then have been with a company called ideas to go for now, uh, coming up on 17 years. And That's I- amazing in this day yeah. and age. Well, yeah, it's unusual too. I mean, the longest I was anywhere else ever before was about six years. And so it's, it's really been wonderful. And uh, I get to work with companies across consumer packaged goods, healthcare, financial services, and uh, help them out, come up with lots and lots of really great new uh, offering ideas, communications for any of their new stuff, whatever that is. And so I get to work with extremely creative people. I get to work with clients who are really up for it. And uh, honestly, for whom their time spent with us might be, you know, some of the best days of their work year. And so we never take that for granted. Uh, so it's really, I just feel terribly, terribly fortunate to be able to do this. And, and it's, uh, I think my biggest uh, fear is that at some point someone come and, comes and taps me on the shoulder and, and tells me I have to go get a real job. So. <laughs> Well, let's pray that that day never comes because that's, I think you're, right. you're perfectly suited exactly where you are. Oh, well, and thank you. The way that we met uh, was both in pursuit of our you know, own individual goals, kind of sharpening the saw, if you will, borrowing a Franklin Covey uh, or more specifically Stephen Covey expression. And uh, we met at a training. And I remember sitting across the table from you on this little street in Fort Lauderdale. And I, I feel like it was barbecue for some reason. I don't know why I remember the kind of food that we had. But nevertheless, the conversation was such everyone's kind of going around the table giving that little like, oh, yeah, I used to do this and now I'm doing this. And, you know, those quick little bios that we do when we meet people. And yours caught my attention because <laughs> why don't you go ahead and give us a quick overview of, you know, where you, you told us where you are now professionally. Where were you? Uh, beyond professionally, you mean? Well, more just the idea of your involvement with the church. Yeah. So I'm from uh, that part of Idaho that is a cultural colony of Utah. Uh, just right up, you know, uh, I-15. And so one might be able to pull that all together and imagine what my religious background might be. Might be. And yes, indeed, I am a fourth generation Mormon. Uh, Great grandpa was the immigrant from Denmark and the convert to the church. And uh, I did all, you know, the things that, you know, uh, one would expect from a Mormon kid. I, uh, you know, I served my mission in Ecuador uh, I went to BYU where I met my wife and, and we got married and, uh, you know, uh, then went on to have four kids and, you know, all, all those good things. And so being that I do what I do for a living, that I am who I am, uh, the 
I, I think the real wonder is why did it take until I was in my late thirties <laughs> for it to kind of, um, you know, kind of come apart. And, and I think it's a tribute to acculturation. And I think, you know, I, I was a, I was a good devout Mormon. I was very involved. I was involved, um, I was leader of the men's group in our congregation, uh, you know, for years. I was very active in kind of lay ministry, um, visiting families every month and making sure that they were um, being supported and, you know, that they felt loved and, and that all was going well with them. And so, you know, given that I challenge assumptions for a living, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just, uh, I guess it just took a while for me to kind of finally get to, uh, to that topic. Sure. And, and I think that that makes sense, especially given everything that we've seen about the cultural impacts of growing up and being invested in church communities and within the organized religion, because there does become this idea that it, it permeates so much of what we do. And a lot Absolutely. of times we can't really see the forest for the trees, so to speak, you know, when it comes to our own selves and being able to differentiate between that. But I remember sitting across the table from you and going, wait, BYU, I know BYU. BYU. I know that that's Brigham Young <laughs> University. And the reason why I know what BYU is, because sometimes, you know, I will, I'll just kind of rattle off my alma mater when I have to, I avoid saying it. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, and you picked up on, you're like, ORU, as in like Oral Roberts University. Like, maybe, yeah, why? So, you know, here we are with like hundreds of other people. And I think probably we may have been the only two who would have actually recognized our schools for what they were. So, so with that being said, uh, so take us through this, this idea, this journey that you went on. What, what happened that caused the challenge to start to rise to the forefront for you to start, you know, challenging those assumptions that you'd made and, and really the lifestyle and commitments that you had all the way up through that point in your adult life. Yeah, it was really, it really, I mean, it's a thousand things and it's a couple of things, you know, all at the same time. Um, I think what really got it going was my, I was really trying to do the right thing in, in all the roles that I had, you know, I was, uh, um, you know, I wanted to be a good employee, uh, a good dad, a good husband. Um, and I think there was a real need for me in my head, the way I teed it up was I need to really sort out what are the negotiables of my faith from the non-negotiables. Hmm. And when it really comes down to it, really focus on those non-negotiables and say, look, this is it. Any of the other stuff, any of the other observances or just even some of the some of the cultural um, quirks, whatever. I needed to be w willing to let them go because I just, I mean, it isn't kind of an issue of bandwidth and, you know, kind of, you know, attentional capability. And so in doing that, and like really kind of reimmersing myself in the, in the scriptures and everything, I think I became increasingly frustrated then with all the time, all the care, all the, all the, agita that was coming up around those those clear negotiables you know the things that you know if, if if you observe them and they work for you great but to try to make them um like bedrock <laughs> principle mm -hmm. of the faith or anything was really just um you know kind of pointless and really kind of distracting and and to the extent that it actually got in the way mm. of living like the, the most fundamental parts of the gospel. And I use the word fundamental uh, carefully, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it, you know, I came to see those things as really um, not just unimportant to observe, but actually harmful. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I found myself, you know, the Mormon church has a lay ministry. There's, there's no paid clergy. So we all volunteer, but you know, you, like any good organization, you have organizational meeting, meetings where you come together to discuss what's going on. And I increasingly, as I went in this direction, I could increasingly tell that I'm in this room now with other people. And uh, although physically I was just sitting, you know, next to anyone, it felt that spiritually this, mm. this bigger gulf was forming. And I felt like um, I 
was just less able to go with a lot of the extraneous stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, it, and so bit by bit, it just, it, it just became untenable. And I finally, um, excused myself <laughs> from my responsibilities there. And I just said, look, I, I believe in rights of free association. Any organization ought to be able to do whatever it wants and ought to be able to reinforce whatever cultural norms it wants and everything. And I just really can't, I, I'm not on board with, with, mm-hmm. with so much of this stuff anymore. Uh, concurrently, I mean, there had been over the years I had faced particular issues. Like, so for example, my, um, one of my dear friends from high school and first year of college before we all went on our missions, uh, actually came out to me, um, about, I think it was about eight years after we graduated from high school. We'd lost track with each other, but he, he came out with me and is really a, a kind of kind of an amazing story that involved a dream and everything for me to, you know, kind of have my subconscious line up all the pieces for me. Mm. But it led to this amazing three and a half hour conversation in which I apologized profusely for anything mm. that I had done, you know, inadvertently or, you know, whatever to, to make him feel lesser or anything. And at that moment I knew that, you know, the church was just wrong on, mm. on, on how it saw gay people. And I told him that, I wanted him to be clear that I was with him, that I loved him, and that I was just going to have to say, okay, the church has got this wrong, and we just have to hope that, you know, with a little bit of time, the church gets there. Of course, the church is not there, and even in the last three years, has even actually kind of uh, done a little bit of retrograde Mm. stuff. So, uh, as all these things kind of started to collect, uh, kind of just concurrent with my trying to figure out how to be a good Mormon and dad and husband and and worker and all those things, it just it just got to the point where it wasn't workable anymore. Yeah, it just kind of all all added up at that point. So, yeah. what happened? How did that work within your family? Was your wife going through a similar process? Did you bring this to her of kind of like, hey, here's kind of how I'm feeling. What do you think about this? Like, how does that work when you're in a committed marriage and, you know, so much of what you built your marital family on was really the foundation of the church? So what did that look like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, I, it was difficult. And, um, you know, what I did find out is that my wife was never as, ironically, she was never as conservative and as, you know, kind of unquestioningly believing as I was. And she always had, I think, a little more nuanced view of, you know, some of the truth claims of the church, uh, what's going on with some of the leadership, you know, all male leadership, you know, mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, and so that was interesting. And she, you know, we, after, after you know, sometimes, you know, lots of tough conversations and everything, we, we finally really got to a place where uh, having a little bit of religious pluralism in our marriage and in our family wasn't uh, necessarily a bad thing. Uh, she has now gone on to, uh, I think as, as each one of the four kids individually peeled away from the church, uh, she is now, um, she, she no longer attends and she's no longer observing. So, um, I mean, that was, you know, that was tough. And kind of throughout that there were several times where I told her that, you know, as our kids pulled away from the church, that uh, it wasn't on her that the church had made itself so irrelevant to that generation. Mm. And she shouldn't feel bad for decisions that the church overall was making uh, about just kind of digging in their heels on, on, and really being intransigent on really important things like, you know, mm-hmm. what, do we do, what do we do with gay people? Right. So, uh, yeah, so we're now, uh, we're now both out, (laughs) which is good. Yeah, I can imagine just being able to have those conversations, but what a beautiful testament to your marriage that you guys could navigate this and do so with enough grace and room for you each to find your own way in that. Because I think that so many of the, the layers that we have to kind of go through and peel each one bit by bit 
it can be really unnerving and it can really start to impact who we are or at least who we think we are. You know, our entire worldview, our entire self-worth system oftentimes is built on the same bedrock. So then you really get into that identity bit. Well, if Absolutely. I'm not this person, then who am I? <laughs> and if I don't believe this, then what do I believe? And it just, it leads you to question, to question, to question. And that can be pretty challenging to go on, especially when your partner isn't feeling or thinking the same thing. So that's that's really beautiful that you guys can navigate that. Well, well, thank you. And, you know, I I think the lion's share of the credit has to go to her. Uh, she didn't sign up for, you know, the journey that I started going on. Mm. And, um, you know, we, we talked a lot. I mean, it's not like it was an entire surprise to her. I mean, she knew where I was going and, you know, we'd we've always had, I think, a pretty um, honest relationship where, you know, we could, we could deal with the tough stuff. And I, and I do believe that, you know, it's important um, <laughs> the moment you start to identify, you know, any kind of elephant in the room. Uh, it's just, it gets uncomfortable. And then I believe the elephant probably starts off as a baby, but starts starts growing. Grows pretty fast, right? <laughs> kind of kind of exponentially, and the room gets the room gets pretty damn crowded. Mm -hmm. And and so look, if it's there, and you and you both know it's there, and you're not dealing with it, you're I think you're just setting yourself up for um, even more difficult conversations, or or absent the conversation, then just you know eventually I think some kind of failure in the relationship. Right. Yeah. The distance yeah. that just continues to widen. You mentioned the idea of the gulf that was separating you from the person sitting next to you in the meeting. Yeah. When it's your home, and that happens, it's all the more profound and pervasive. I mean, it just that impacts everything. Speaking right. from experience. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting when. You know, this idea of the identity that we create as not only provided for by the church, but I think also very much enhanced. You know, it's this Absolutely. idea of we want you to identify with us. We want there to be an us versus them because then there comes another layer of uh, added security for yeah. them to kind of hold the community the way that they want to. And again, you mentioned this idea of cultural norms. Now, I will be very quick to say, you and I are both like really geeky when it comes to <laughs> the psychology of all of this and the group think and, you know, all of that type of a thing. So we may go off the rails just a little bit because it's the way that our brains work. So I just want to put that disclaimer out there because, you know, it's what we do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But well, I hopefully we can tee it up in a way that is accessible and, and, uh, you know, your audience can understand why it's why it's worth sticking with us. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, be patient, be patient. But I think really so many of us have experienced this. We just didn't have the, the tool set at the time to be able to identify what it was happening in yeah. that moment. And now it's, you know, going back and taking that retrospective look, we're like, oh, wait, that's where this piece factored into that piece. And now we can see it all for what it was. But I also want to be very quick to say, I don't feel that there was some, you know, group of, let's call them middle-aged white men, most likely, in a room with the doors locked, having this conversation about how that they can control the entire generation. I don't think it was quite that extreme, but at some point in time, perhaps that meeting really did take place for that particular instance, and the cultural norms there in that moment were then perpetuated from generation to generation to generation, and now we've got this, where we're you know, kind of waking up going, what? This doesn't even make yeah. any sense. And yet we all believed it for so long. Well, it's the, it, I think it is the accumulation of lots of small decisions and, and uh, uh, you know, alert on the psychology here. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've, I've been studying behavioral science very deeply for about uh, a dozen years now. Uh, and actually, you know, have, have written some on, you know, how, certain cognitive biases are making innovation far more difficult than it need be. One of them is conformity bias. And, you know, we play along to get along, you know, don't rock the boat. Um, and it's easy to understand all the cognitive biases evolved were selected for because they worked. They, they mm -hmm. satisfied certain needs that we had, you know, eons ago. So in a lot of ways, our cognition has not changed in you know about ten thousand years, we've certainly added our vocabulary. We certainly much know much more 
uh, about science and, and there've been all these really great breakthroughs, but some of the most important basics of how we think, how we react largely, uh, these are the echoes of 10,000 generations. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to understand that conformity bias play along so you can get along was so vital because, of, because when our life was lived at this level of daily existential threat, getting along with the group was survival. Mm -hmm. And if you were seen as not loyal, if you were seen as in, in any way contributing to the group not being as effective and keeping everyone safe and providing for everyone as, as it could, then it was at that point, it was adaptive to kind of get you out of the group. Um, there, there's kind of this, you know, um, this, this fear of contagion of weird ideas or, or just maladaptive responses to a very brutal environment. Mm -hmm. And so we still have that. And so now when we feel that and we, and our, our threat detection apparatus makes no distinction between, oh, you know, Beth didn't like what I just said and tiger, you know? <laughs> And so it's all danger, it doesn't matter yeah, what it's form danger. it's in, it's all yeah. danger. <laughs> we, do, we don't have kind of different levels of response to that. We have the same cortisol and, and you know, norepinephrine response to that. Our heart rate goes up. Uh, it, it really feels very dangerous to us when, when we kind of get that kind of feedback and everything. So, you know, we're, we're smart. We are the social uh, hominid. You know, that's what really kind of separates us even from our other hominid, um, you know, cousins. And so we can read a room, we get it. So now bringing this to religion and you understand particularly really um, strong, uh, almost, you know, I, I hate to use the word because it, it seems so charged, but it, I, I think it's apt, totalitarian religions mm -hmm. where it's not just what you do on Sunday. It's not just kind of a, kind of a nominal identity. It is your identity. It's your primary Absolutely. identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now coupling this, this fear of rejection and everything with that can really lead to some, um, I mean, just really, you know, kind of terrible results. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting to me because as we're talking, I mean, up to this point, we've really been talking more about the culture of the church as opposed to the actual what we believe in, the faith, the yeah. spirituality piece. Yeah. And that in and of itself is fascinating to me because I think that, you know, again, being in that environment, there was no separation of the two. It was all encompassing. But now with some time, with some distance, with some experience, with some knowledge, we can very easily now, it still gets a little bit complicated, but we can very easily separate. I can be a spiritual person. I can have a faith that may or may not line up with what I was taught. And I can also see all the different layers and all the different moving pieces to this. So it's it's just fascinating to me to be able to, you know, it, it cracks me up. Every time I have these conversations, you would not believe <laughs> the number of scriptures that are still running through my head. Because right now, the one that's coming to mind is the idea of the word of God being a double-edged sword. Yeah. And how quickly and easily it can cut through and separate between this idea of religion versus spirituality. And so it just kind of cracks me up too. In addition, you'd mentioned one of the things that kind of helped guide you in this process or, or started the unraveling was going back to scripture. So yeah. I think that that's really interesting too, because I feel like the more, how do I want to say this? The more out of the church I've been, uh, for a while, I went to the whole extreme of like, yeah, I'm so done. Like, I'm mad at God. And I think that all the things that are bad that have happened in my life are his fault. And why did he let this happen? And then eventually I got back to the idea of, okay, God, I kind of sort of miss you, but I have no idea how to get back to you because all I know is this church environment and that was not healthy for me. So yeah. now what do I do? And yeah. that kind of, you know, led into this whole little other thing. But the more that I am where I'm at now, it is fascinating how often these scriptures come back. And I'm starting to see this idea of like, maybe, just maybe, all the things I was taught to avoid as a child by way of fear and control, that that's new agey or, you know, whatever the case might be, whatever label they wanted to put on it, maybe it's really all the same thing. Well, and, and this is true. And so um, almost regardless of source, certain ideas that endure over, 
you know, the, the centuries um, do so because they're, uh, they're useful. They help in some way. Now, certain ideas that endure over the centuries are also horrible. Again, they, it, it's, it's, it, I, I, I worry less about truthfulness than usefulness now. So mm-hmm. what's going on with an idea? Is it useful in a way that leads to better results? Does it lead, does it lead to uh, increased, uh, an increased capability for empathy? Does it, or does it lead to just um, stronger in-group identity and, and cohesion? Uh, and those two things are often at odds. Uh, great empathy within the group, um, very quick to consider people who are in the group somehow as other and just wired differently and just like, it's just hard to relate to them. Mm-hmm. But um, this, uh, this I, so these ideas, so, so here's, here's an example. Um, you know, in, uh, I'm pretty sure it's in the Sermon on the Mount where, uh, you know, we're, we're told, you know, it's so easy to call out, you know, the other person on, on where they're airing or, or whatever. Uh, maybe you ought to take a look at the plank that's in your own eye mm-hmm. uh, and not worry so much about the splinter that's in your brother's eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, the psychological term for that now. I mean, that's brilliant. Uh, it's so much easier to spot flaw in other people than to turn the lens on ourselves and, and really be honest about that and really even have kind of the uh, objective capability to see ourselves in the mm-hmm. same in, in that same kind of uh, scrutinizing way, but the psychological term for that is naive realism. Uh, that we believe that how we see the world is how the world actually is, and of mm-hmm. course it isn't, right? Because we're finite, and that so that's why we are better together. We get different perspectives. We hear each other out. We actually learn from each other because the other person actually does have just enough different uh, a take on an, uh, on a topic that it can be helpful if we'll just shut up mm-hmm. and, and, and remain humble and remember that we are uh, prone to this naive realism. And so you see that, you see so many now, I go back and look at it, you see so many really great behavioral science principles in many of these uh, teachings. Mm-hmm. And so I can still benefit from Planck splinter mm-hmm. metaphor without saying, hey, I'm uh, 100% unquestioning Christian. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I love that for multiple reasons. Uh, one, just the idea that there is not truly the absolute that we were told in the sense that we can choose the things that we identify with about that version of spirituality. For example, to say God is love, yeah. period. And to own and hold that piece, it doesn't mean that we have to then subscribe to the entire rest of it. And I think that there are those that would say, well, you know, again, another verse coming to mind is that God wants you to either be hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, he will spew you out of his mouth. Out of his mouth. (laughs) Isn't it funny how I'm like going, where has all this stuff come from? Boy, does that ever speak to the indoctrination? And again, this idea of... uh, yeah, lots of levels there. Um, we haven't quite gotten to the point yet where I think I was actually in a cult for a year that was going under the name of a ministry. We'll work up to that one. Oh, that's awesome. Girls. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get there. Well, I just want to point out, <laughs> um, Tanya, that, you know, we have taken kind of a response to this. I don't know if it's been your, your observation, but um, a lot of people who leave Mormonism make uh, – are really, I think, and I'm, I'm trying not to be judgmental, I understand why they do it, but a, a pretty hasty retreat to out-and-out atheism and, and just really hardcore scientific materialism. Now, I love science. I love everything that's brought to us. I am not afraid of it. It's, science is not the enemy in any way. I embrace it. Um, and science is really good at establishing a lot of the what and even the how, science is not quite as good at establishing the why. And, uh, and, not, and, not, and not in terms of coming up with stories about a sky god who created anything, but, but in terms of investing meaning. Mm. And I was talking with my, uh, my buddy Hunter Motz the other day, really wonderful guy that everyone ought to check out. But we were talking about um, the meaning gap. And so 
you know, given, you know, uh, a global economy that has brought so many people out of abject poverty, given, you know, really fairly on, on any, you know, kind of level of statistics and everything, you know, a, a pretty prosperous society in which we live and everything, you know, sure, there are always going to be issues and everything. We need to be sensitive and figure out ways to help with that. But um, the Enlightenment really achieves kind of exactly what we would have expected to right? in terms of, you know, material prosperity, prosperity. Yeah. Freedom from infectious disease. Perfect. Um, you know, kind of the reduction of, of um, as many of us in menial labor. Uh, yeah, we've done a lot on that. And with the promise of AI and robotics, that's, you know, e even more so. But it's, it's created other problems. It hasn't all been great. And in terms of this overall sense of meaning, and as more and more people, you know, the, I, I think I heard the greatest self-identification now in terms of religion is none. And that's even separate from atheists. You know, there, there are many of us who don't at this moment have particular religious uh, affiliation who aren't atheists. Right. But it really does speak to this uh, meaning gap evolving. Mm -hmm. You know, 50 plus years ago, there was less of a meaning gap because more of us were involved with churches right. that told us what meaning was and really uh, helped us kind of, you know, marshal around a very specific uh, concept of meaning. So as we pull away from that and have to kind of go to this work of, of kind of cobbling together meaning in some way, uh, I think it's actually richer. I think it's better and everything, but some people just, I don't know. Uh, I guess, I, I guess you can find meaning in a completely atheist materialist science uh, perspective. I, I think it's more difficult, um, but it was some of my friends who have gone that way when I've been able to have the conversation with them and, and try not to be too judgmental. I've just asked them if they are open to the notion that in leaving the church and going straight to atheism, they weren't just substituting one form of surety for the, for its photo negative. Mm. Uh, and I, there's some of that there, I, I do believe, but again, I understand why people do it. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's funny because I was thinking even as you're you're describing this idea of non-religious, it makes me think of the online dating profiles. Uh, so, of course, you know, this just tells you in my life with the, the practical <laughs> application. Um, and I haven't I haven't done the whole online dating thing for a while. But I remember when I was first looking at it and when you're filling out these forms, it's like this ridiculous intake process. And I get it. I appreciate that trying to save you some time on the front end because, man, there's a lot of crazies out there. But anyway, oh, yeah. um, you know, this idea of like you've got these little checkboxes. And as I was going through my own spiritual process and my journey, uh, my boxes would change. You know, it started off as, uh, you know, I think that it was just simply Christian and it didn't define anything else. And there was another one that that might specify Protestant or Catholic or, you know, even that was probably about the extent of, of that. And then as I kept going, you know, in my journey, um, I think the last time I had to fill out a form, it was spiritual, not religious. Yeah. And I think that that's still probably pretty accurate. You know, I, I don't feel like there needs to be a religion in order to be spiritual. Well, this is a great question for your future guests. Uh, if, if you're filling out that profile, what would you want the checkbox to be labeled? Mm, yeah, and that's a great question. And my answer for that is, and how I, how I typify my own kind of belief structure now, is I just say seeker without portfolio. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very comfortable not having the answers. Uh, I think the, what I, again, I sound so judgmental, but <laughs> these, are, these are conclusions I've drawn for myself and, and uh, your results may vary. <laughs> uh, I have to make that disclaimer. I've spent too much of my life in uh, marketing communications, too but uh, it's um, it's okay. It, it's just okay not to know. And and once once you start to understand how powerful questions are, mm. and and how um, a life of curiosity. Coupled with some humility, I think obviously. Absolutely. But I think I think for me that is actually just a much healthier approach, and and the effort to try to get all these answers that many of which we know just really aren't like based on 
you know, anything other than we want it to be true. Um, we can just apply our energies better. Uh, we can, we, we can do better. We can, uh, to the extent that needing answers makes you again, less empathetic to people who don't believe as you do, mm -hmm. then that's, uh, that's not, again, that's not just a distraction that's damaging. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's, I love that this is the, the conclusion, or maybe not conclusion, but the, the observation in this, because I think that for me, it wasn't just being comfortable with the questions or being comfortable with the unknown. There was an acceptance here that I needed to get to, and it took me a little while because I am a control freak. I am, I mean, I've been an event planner for 20 years. I mean, come on. Like, not only do I have a backup plan for the backup plan, but I've got a backup plan for that one in case any possible thing goes wrong. I'd come home from events and I couldn't sleep for another three hours later because my brain was trying to solve problems that never happened. Yeah. You know, so it's like the, that's just the way that my brain works. Yeah. I mean, I'm not kidding. I had nightmares for certain weddings. Years later, I'd wake up in a sweat going, okay, the flowers didn't arrive or they arrived damaged and I am in the middle of nowhere in the Poconos and I have to pull together <laughs> six bouquets. What am I going to do? Like this is, these are the things that happen uh, to you when you spend your life in this world. Oh my goodness. Well, that's, I mean, <laughs> but that's- a disclaimer there. <laughs> you, you probably don't have as many, uh, dreams, nightmares, whatever about the, uh, it's the end of the semester and there's a class that you were enrolled in that you didn't know about and yet you still have to take the final, Actually, which is, which is, which is a recurring one for me, even at this late date, even these decades later. Yeah. So being, yeah. going back as our, our previous conversation at Oral Roberts University at the time that I was there, and I would assume it's the same, uh, we had to they called it a fun run. I would like them to revisit the definition of fun, <laughs> but it was required. The first semester you Oh my there, gosh. Every semester. The first semester was one and a half miles. And from there on out, every semester was three miles. And you know, now in retrospective, trying to live a healthier lifestyle, three miles really isn't that big of a deal. However, when you are 19 and 20 and you are not athletic, it is a very big deal. And <laughs> did I mention I was in Tulsa? And I know you might oh, yeah, think yeah. that Tulsa is in, in nice and flat, but it just so happens that where the exact university is, it's not. It is really ah. steep hills, and it's freaking high because it's yeah, Tulsa. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, fast forward, last semester, I was in a car accident the week before the fun run. And I couldn't run because, you know, I needed to go to the chiropractor and all that fun stuff. So I had to get the doctor's note and yada, 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 yada. Oh. It literally, so I would dream about it. And sure enough, I, I literally did get the letter after my diploma was sent to say, by the way, uh, we, we are not so sure that this is actually verified because you still have this last fun run. So I had to go through it, like all the paperwork all over again. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I really, really am done. I am done. That's, that's... <laughs> so yeah, I had that dream too, just as a run, as opposed to a final. Yeah, yeah that just, oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. You got to love it. Um, but okay, so here's what I was thinking though, as far as this, this um, journey, and I keep using the word journey, it sounds really woo-woo, but I don't know how else to describe it. No, it works. The, the idea of being comfortable with the unknown, I think was such a big piece for me to finally get my head around and to really be present because here's what was happening. What I didn't know, and it goes back not only to the time at ORU and the ministry that I mentioned before that, but even further back as a kid growing up in the church, that I somehow separated from myself. And really, you know, uh, this idea of, you know, yeah. again, all these verses coming to mind that when I look at them through fresh eyes, I don't see what I was told to see. I see something very differently. Yeah. Um, but what I was told was that I couldn't rely on my emotions because sure. they couldn't be trusted. Sure. And um, that I couldn't rely on my body because I needed to beat my body and make it my slave. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, all of these different things. So there was a massive separation within myself. And it wasn't until I came back to me that I really started to have enough space and be present, like literally yeah. fully present in this moment right here, right now, in order to 
be okay with not knowing what was going to happen in the next minute. And that took me time. It took me some practice. And again, that humility that we talked about, you know, really being okay with saying, I don't know, and I'm going to be okay. Whatever happens in the next minute, it's okay. It's going to be all right. I don't have to have a plan for the plan now and miss what's actually happening now because I'm so future focused. Yeah, I I, I think that's right. I I think, you know, when you get, I, I think, a more adaptive understanding of really who we are, how we're wired, what what's really going on, um, it just leads you to better decisions, and it leads you, I think, to a, I, I think a happier life. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of getting back to being concerned a little bit less about now. This sounds those, those who don't understand this will will think I'm just uh, arguing for absolute moral uh, rel- relativism now, and I'm not. But focusing more, focusing less on what is true and more on what is helpful, Hmm. I've just found to be a much healthier approach. And what I find is that as long as the conversation is on what is true, it's hard to have a conversation with anyone who diverges from your take Hmm. at all, even within the same faith. Right. Because now these kind of become, because those answers are so tied to identity. If you're thinking a little bit differently than I do on, on even some fine points, I, I, you know, that can be really threatening. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I found. I've been very fortunate in in that most of my family, uh, extended family, family I grew up in and everything have been, um, have been fine with it. My siblings were all good. You know, they, they, uh, they love me and I love them and, and we're fine. You know, with my parents is a little more difficult, but we got to a place there as well, finally. But, um, when you leave a church that's that's kind of that uh, that conservative that kind of all encompassing it really can be threatening to your mm. family and friends who are, are are still so allied with it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and i think that's where the community it again that idea helpful versus true when everything is wrapped up in that community and your own self-worth is tied to that value system and how that community sees you. I yeah. mean, let's let's be honest and call it what it is. You're in for a mindfuck. Like, yeah. I mean, there's so many layers that you have to peel back and, again, really sit with yourself and develop a, a self-awareness that I think so many of us never had, excuse me, but specifically because we were told not to. Yeah. You know, it was it was structured as such that we didn't need to invest any time to understand ourselves or our motives or our thoughts. We simply needed to follow the rules. Yeah. So let me, uh, I just want to give you, in terms of a way forward, I just want to give a quick plug for one idea. This is not the way forward because I don't believe in one the ways forward anymore but uh have you seen the it's been going around on social media or maybe been exposed to it otherwise but the japanese concept of ikigai i have but for those that haven't yet tell us more okay so it's four circles and you try to find the intersection of the four and so um in terms of what you do with your life and you know not just your job i think it, it can really rise to the to the idea of calling uh, and, and so the four circles are, I'm good at it. I can, uh, I, I'm good at it. I love doing it. I can be paid sufficiently for it and the world needs it. And so to the extent that you can find the intersection of all those four things, that is what the Japanese call Ikigai or life purpose. And I will be the first to admit how absurdly lucky I've been to get clarity on that. And, um, I don't speak of it now from a position of, hey, look what I've done, everyone should do as well. No, look, we're all, I'm, still, I'm still walking that path to Ikigai. I'm still trying to make it better. I'm still trying to get better in all of those areas mm-hmm. and looking for more and more connections. So really to try to find that, you know, that Venn overlap. But what I have noted is that too many people do have just kind of this view of what they of what their job is and and even kind of what their career is that well that just kind of takes care of my physical needs and and make sure that you know the mortgage is paid bills are paid all those things but like any real meaning 
I'm just not going to find in my job. And I'll do that. That's, that's for nights and weekends and vacation time and being with family or whatever that is. And I'll be the first to say, yes, I love all those things as well. But when you consider how much time we spend at work, mm. it's just not to find some kind of connection, something that is deeply meaningful about one's work that actually can be nourishing, that actually mm -hmm. can be you know, a platform for personal growth beyond just becoming better at your job. Uh, I just want to, I'm in, in a lot of my, you know, volunteer work, I'm really trying to help people get there. And mm -hmm. I think uh, I, I have a, a very modest goal of um, helping 50 million people uh, get on the path to Ikigai. Very modest. Uh, yeah, it's pretty modest. <laughs> I, I think it's, when I thought is what's the most kind of outrageous number you can think of that isn't so ridiculous that you could just, just actually never get there. Uh, yeah, 50 million sounds about fine. There we go. There we go. I love it. But yeah, I mean, it really, it requires kind of this all encompassing approach to our lives. And again, much more of a holistic approach as opposed to just any one individual silo. That's and right. I think, again, you know, I look at society at large, again, being informed by the influences of organized religion and the little, you know, church on every corner, main town uh, or small main street, small town, USA type of a thing. Yeah. Cause I do think that that goes hand in hand and how that's all been created as we, we take a look back at the last 200 years. But having said that, I think that when we start to, is where we can really give the millennials a shout out. When we look at our lives as a whole and as a collective, instead of these individual silos, then it gives us a, a new perspective to be able to find that kind of connection, not only with the work that we're doing, but the people that we choose to do life with. Because how often Absolutely. do we think that like, oh, well, they're just my neighbor or they're just my coworkers. I, you know, they're my family. I'm stuck with them. Like that's just, well, these are the people in my world and we Absolutely. think we don't have a choice and that's so wrong. Well, and just looking at your own uh, calling, your own career, uh, Tanya, and, and I, I, I'm guessing you'd you'd feel similar to how I feel. I was a better dad because I really loved my work, mm -hmm. you know. And I think importantly, and and fortunately, at least so far, it looks like it's going that way. Um, our kids got it, and they're now on a path. They're pursuing things they really love and are good at. Right. Uh, and with time, they'll be paid better and better for it, and they'll find opportunities to connect that to to really meaningful things that the world needs. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think um, it's, it really is, it is about holism. And another word for holism, I think in this sense is, you know, integrity, you know, again, geek alert, <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, etymology uh, uh, geekdom here, but you know, integrity comes from the same root as integer, mm -hmm. you know, one, mm -hmm. you know, and so being able to kind of pull that all together and, and, that people would not really be surprised at all what you do in your volunteer activities because it's just an extension of what you do for work, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera, because it really taps into the, you know, the capabilities that you have and over time you become so proficient with and everything. And so this is, I, I, I think, I wanna help more and more people get there. It's not a, a surprise that if I meet a stranger on a plane and we have that, that that brief conversation, oh, what do you do? Oh, what do you, oh, that's interesting. And then the, the com conversation unfolds. I get this regular response from people that, wow, <laughs> how did you create that? How'd you get that and everything? And I said, love, it's luck. I gotta be honest, but it's, it's getting clarity. And for me, part of this at least was understanding that, you know, I was easily gonna spend easily 80,000 hours in my career. Mm -hmm. And for that to be anything less than this effort that really does bring in my heart and my soul and everything as well, I, I just, I, I, that was unacceptable to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely get that. And it, it makes me think of a book by Dr. Henry Cloud, The One Life Solution. Yes. 
I, yeah, I'm a big fan of that idea and the consistency of integration. I get so riled up when people talk about the whole work-life balance. I'm like, it doesn't exist. It's all one life. And not to steal his his verbiage, but I mean, really, it's all the one thing that we get to do in in our life force and our time and our energy. Um, And I also want to clarify, when I was talking about this idea of the community and I said it's wrong, I wanted to, to... correct myself because really cool. I don't mean as a value based that you're wrong in thinking that I mean that it's not true that you have to maintain community with those that you happen to be surrounded by you know I sure. think about my we call ourselves our, our chosen family and yeah. these are the the people that I've been in deep deep community with for 25 years and we've never lived with each other for more than a year and that was 25 years ago yeah so you know it just it becomes that intentional choosing who you want to engage with and the the kind of mindset you want people to have the kind of books you want to read the kind of music you want to listen to i mean all of these things factor into creating our environment but ultimately that is a choice that each of us have the ultimate responsibility for. You know, your right. the environment that you live in is up to you to create. And I think sometimes, especially coming out of a church environment, that isn't the first thing that we become aware <laughs> of because it was all created for us. That's and right. then when it's all stripped away, oftentimes by our own choosing, we don't necessarily have a game plan of where to go for, from there about how to create something, not only to replace it, but to make it better That's right. in that it, it gives us the freedom to find out who we are now. I feel like I'm doing uh, congregation uh, shoutbacks and, and <laughs> preach, preach. That's right. We do that a lot around here. It is hysterical. There are some times when I get like fired up and I am on my soapbox and I'm just like, okay, I, I better calm down for just half a second here. <laughs> well, I am so grateful for your time, Adam, uh, and just for getting all geeky with me and our, our psychology stuff and, and really just sharing your own personal experience in this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I was honored to come on and uh, life is too short not to have more great conversations. Mm, isn't that the truth? Yeah. I, yeah. I'm a fan of great conversations, as you guys can tell, because this is you know <laughs> what we do around here. <laughs> well, if you guys are listening and this has resonated for you, my ask is really simple. Just share it with someone else you think that it would really mean a lot to as well. Uh, you know, it's always nice to get the reviews and the, the ratings and the feedback and all that kind of stuff. And, and by all means, keep that coming. But really, it's about having the conversation and being able to have that connection with the people that you do choose to do life with. And that's really what it's all about. So Adam, thank you for being one of the many that I am privileged to say that I get to engage in these conversations with and and to do life together. So thank you for that. Tanya, any opportunity to have uh, this kind of conversation with you is going to be something I'm going to jump on. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll keep you in mind and take you up on that. (laughs) Right on, buddy. Awesome. Thanks so much. We'll see you guys soon. Bye-bye.